it's so hard for Palestinians and Israelis to meet face to face now. You know, Palestinians are fragmented into, you know, East Jerusalem Palestinians and Israeli Palestinians and West Bank Palestinians and Gaza Palestinians. And in that book, you suggest that it's critical to think like and develop the mindset of an entrepreneur. What exactly do you mean by that? That's Sandy Tolan, followed by Jasmine Kendricks. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. Jasmine Kendricks is co-host of The Way with Jazz and Tay. Jasmine will talk to me about self-employment. Is it for you? If you are thinking about going into business either now or after we get back to some semblance of normalcy, self-employment is a step that you may want to consider. I will give you a heads up. As in the book I wrote about starting your own business... I'm not trying to talk you into or out of going into business for yourself. My only goal is to provide you with the objective information so that you can make that determination for yourself. By the way, you can hear Shantae Young's and Jasmine Kendrick's radio show on KKNW at 7 a.m. Thursday mornings. If you hear anything on Voices of Experience today or any other time that you would like to comment on, you can call 206 406- Four five nine five five three six. That's two zero six four five nine fifty five thirty six. Also joining us in just a moment, current professor at the University of Southern California with the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism. He is an author of several books and has produced award-winning documentaries. He wrote a book called *The Lemon Tree* in two thousand six and recently re-released an updated version of the book with the same name, but it is targeted to children. The Lemon Tree is a powerful story of how an Arab and a Jew found common ground in a divided Middle East. My first question, what inspired Sandy to write the original book in 2006? The approaching anniversary of what Palestinians call the Nakba, or the catastrophe, and Israelis call the... War of Independence, and it's the same event that historians call the the first Arab-Israeli War. So I actually went looking for a story that would somehow get beyond the I won't say tired because it's it's the repetition of tragedy is still tragedy, but the story of you know an exploding bus in Tel Aviv or a, a, a child, a Palestinian child in a refugee camp being shot down and killed by an Israeli soldier. And the stories that feel like we've read this before again and again and again, going back decades and even generations. And I wanted to find a story that told that history in really human and humane terms that would go beyond, uh, not ignore, but go beyond the the litany of blood and talk about common humanity, history, and connection. And so I actually went looking in 1998, which is the 50th anniversary of the War of Independence and the catastrophe, uh, to find a story that would link two families, and I found one. That's amazing, yeah, that you were actually looking for that, and then you did find it. 
Yeah, I mean, we got uh, it, it started out as a radio program. I I was um, uh, I we our production company got a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the grant was to do a series called World Views, and the idea was getting people to tell their own stories in their own words and getting a, a little bit of that traditional documentary voice of God announcer uh, away from the story, as, as great as you know, people like Edward R. Murrell were in, in actually crafting a whole genre, a whole powerful form of, of truth-telling, of storytelling. At the same time, I wanted to hear, in the series, we wanted to hear directly from people and, and to tell a story. And so I found these two people, um, their story had been told a, a little bit before in the Jerusalem Post and other places, but it was a story of two people in one house and a common history. And um, I I was able to find them. And, you know, what happened in that time is, is this little boy, Bashir, six-year-old kid, was expelled from the house that his father built in the town of Ramleh in 1948 and went into exile and always wondered who was living in his house and could he ever go back. All he and the hundreds of thousands of other Palestinians wanted was to go home. And all, uh, and, and yet, at the same time, thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands of, of Jews from Europe and other parts of the world moved to Israel after its creation, and one of those was a little infant named Dahlia who moved into that very house Bashir had lived in, Bashir being the six-year-old boy, the Palestinian boy, and they lived in that house for 19 years wondering who lived here before and why did they leave? And in school, Dahlia was told, you know, the Arabs were cowards. They just ran away with the soup steaming on the table. Um, and Bashir kept wondering, you know, who's living in our house, and when can I go home? You know, and finally they met at the door one day uh, when Bashir was able to travel back after the Six-Day War in 1967, and he and his two cousins went, and they arrived at the gate that his father had built of the stone home in Ramleh and rang the bell, and now Dahlia was no longer an infant but 19 years old and answered, came to the gate and opened the door. And that was the beginning. It was when Bashir you know, with much trepidation, said, you know, can I, can I just come in and see the house? And, you know, the Six-Day War was a resounding defeat for the Arabs and a, and a perceived by many Israelis as a miraculous victory. And so Bashir, instead of coming back in triumph to live in his home, finally be able to go home, was just asking for permission to see inside the home that his father built and that he was expelled from. And Dahlia sensed that she had an answer to the question, this puzzle. It didn't make sense that these Palestinians had just run away in cowardly way. And so she somehow, even though the enemy was at the gate, she invited them in. So, you know, you wonder why that didn't happen, going back to your, to your question, Paul. Why didn't that happen more often? Why didn't people see the common history and, and try to create a solution? Um, but the wounds are so deep, and the wounds of the Holocaust were so deep that uh, many uh, generations later, um, Israelis, you know, feel so threatened, um, and you know, and sometimes with good cause. But but at the same time, in recent generations, there's been an expansionist 
uh, regime that, that has basically forced people into these tiny enclaves. So we've gone so far from that original hope of people living together that even preceded 1948. You know, people like Martin Buber and Albert Einstein believed in a kind of a binational existence. Um, and we're really far from that reality, and I don't know that we'll be returning to it anytime soon. I, I hope... I have hope that we will at some point, but it's, we're a long way from it now. Yeah, I was going to ask you that question. Do you see hope at all that this could somehow, some way that they could come and live together? But then it just seems to me it's almost worse than it's ever been. What, what has happened in the last 25 years, one of the great ironies um, of, of the last generation or so, is that 1993 was the beginning of what's called you probably remember the Oslo process, and it was known as the peace process. The great irony of Oslo is that uh, the expansion of Israeli settlements quadrupled. There are four or five times as many settlers on the West Bank, and now Jerusalem is ringed by Israeli settlements, 17 of them surrounding the, the place that, is, that Palestinians wanted for their capital in East Jerusalem. Um, and increasingly travel between these these enclaves that Palestine has been the, the West Bank has been cut into these small pieces like an archipelago uh, between settlements between Israeli military posts when I first went there in you know 1993 94 I was I was shocked that they were already building these VIP roads for settlers on what was supposed to be Palestinian a Palestinian homeland. Um, and so that's just gotten progressively worse. Every time I go there, I, I used to play a little game. Could I drive for an entire minute without seeing some evidence of military patrol? And after, you know, a few years ago, I just stopped playing that little game with myself because it wouldn't be, you know, but half a minute. So that... That is a, you know, it's bleak in the short term. In the long term, though, what's happened, and, and some people think this is a good thing, some people do not, but basically all of what I just described, plus President Trump moving the Israeli embassy, the American embassy uh, in Israel to, to Jerusalem, to East Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the, the capital of a Palestinian state, all but killed the idea and the and the hope of a two-state solution. What will probably emerge at some point, especially if there's a shift in power, uh, you know, globally, uh, is the 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 effort for you know one man, one person, one vote. Um, at some point, you can't have half of the population of a of a landscape living under a military occupation. At some point. The notion of human rights, of, of individual rights, the notion of liberty, of freedom, of freedom of movement for everyone in the Holy Land to live without fear of uh, a, a military raid, without fear of a bomb going off. And that we are really far from. But the principle of rights now, uh, probably more than any time in the last 25 years, there's a freedom to assert that because the old solution that the West, you know, the Americans in particular, um, have have promoted, and that Americans, you know, quite frankly, every administration has abetted uh, the Israeli expansion because it was only before Oslo that the U.S. has actually threatened economic consequences for settlement expansion. No other president since 
the first George Bush has done that. And as a result, the U.S. has, has essentially abetted this process that has brought to us to this sort of hopeless situation vis-a-vis the two-state solution. So now, in the interest of rights and freedom, there has to be another way to look at it. And it seems to me, if I'm remembering this uh, correctly, about half the Israelis are against a lot of what's been going on now. Yeah, that, I mean, for, for a long time, there was, you know, there was great hope for a two-state solution. Unfortunately, I mean, the primary, I mean, there were various reasons against that. There were, you know, a Palestinian suicide bombers that, that, that sent great waves of fear into, into Israeli citizens. But there was also what I talked about, this giant expansionism in the midst of a so-called peace process. It's so hard for Palestinians and Israelis to meet face-to-face now. You know, Palestinians are fragmented into, you know, East Jerusalem Palestinians and Israeli Palestinians and West Bank Palestinians and Gaza Palestinians and the millions of Palestinians in the global diaspora. These are five separate communities that hardly can talk to each other, you know, face to face, much less Israelis and Palestinians being able to face each other. And so what's going to need to happen is someone with a true humane vision, hopefully from both sides, a Mandela, a, a Dr. King, who sees the the fruits, and including the economic fruits, of a genuine humane reconciliation. Um, you know, and, and I think that people would support that. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I can now see why you updated your book, your original book, uh, Lemon Tree, from 2006, to now being directed towards children. And maybe if they can learn some of these lessons early on, they may have a better outcome going forward. Was that your inspiration for the book? Yeah, that was a lot of it, Paul. I mean, it was also, first of all, the, the story is, yes, it's, it's a what I like to call a history book in disguise written like a novel. And in the Young Reader's Edition especially, a lot of the denser history is taken out, and it's a real... Hopefully, people will find it to be a real page turner and not feel like a history book. Not feel like you know. Take I think it's so well written, and I, I uh-huh. I'm an adult, I guess, and I, I read it, and I, I very much is captivated by it. I don't think it's well, a children's book at all in the sense that yeah, well, it's, it's there, but nonetheless, it, it tells a lot of history and in a very understandable way. Well, thank you. Um, and the other thing is that there are universal stories in it, not that go beyond Israel and Palestine. It's a story. Of exile, it's a universal story of longing for home, of of having the right to feel safe in your home, of having the right to travel freely between your community and and your family across the way, across the West Bank. Um, and it's also, I think, especially for you know this divided nation that we have right now, um, that where we we live in two different realities, at least if not more. It's a story of one side reaching out to the other um, in an effort to understand each other, and then a response. Um, and that's what happened when Dahlia literally opened the gate and asked Bashir, invited them, her, him and his cousins to come in. It was a gesture of universal humanity and reaching out. And then Bashir did the same when he invited Dahlia to come visit him in the West Bank. And they began to understand each other. And if they could, across this chasm that's, that's even larger than the one that has grown 
in recent years in, in America, I think there's a lesson for children there as well. That's journalist and author Sandy Tolan. Visit Amazon to get your copy of The Lemon Tree by Sandy Tolan. That's T-O-L-A-N, a great read. It's even better because it offers optimism in this very troubled region. Jasmine Kendricks of The Way with Jazz and Tay coming up next. She will be talking to me about self-employment. Is it for you? You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Paul, you did write the book, um, Is Self-Employment for You? And in that book, you suggest that it's critical to think like and develop the mindset of an entrepreneur. What exactly do you mean by that? Some people grow up Mm -hmm. in families that their father or mother is an entrepreneur. They already have the mindset. I'm looking at people like me who grew up in a family that did not have that. They worked a salary jobs. If you're working for someone else... Develop the the mindset that an example of it's Jasmine Kendricks Incorporated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's who you are working for someone else. And even though you're working for a company like a Microsoft or Amazon, start developing the mindset that you're an entrepreneur within that company. And that will make your transition if and when you want to do that much easier. Yeah, I really like that when you said like thinking about how do you want to live and go from there. I really like that. That sticks out to me. When it came to putting together this book, you know, where did you get your information? Or, you know, was it through personal experience, a mixture of like research? You know, how did you get to to the content that you have put in there? I think a combination of both. You'd hear other people talking about becoming an entrepreneur and what it took to be successful. And then my own experience as I went through it, because I didn't have the preparation. I never really took a course in entrepreneurship at college. Well, Mm. they really didn't exist then. That's interesting Mm. right there. Back in the 70s and 80s, it was all about being, Mm. you know, let's say an accountant or going into engineering. So that just shows how much it was neglected over the years. And now a bunch of universities are in that because I guess there's a profit center there and people have changed their view on that. And a lot of people want to be an entrepreneur. Do you hear from your readers often and like what feedback have they given in regards to it? You know, like have they come, come away with a lot of, you know, new insightful information? 
Well, I'm pleased if you go on Amazon to book reviews. There are not a lot of them. I don't play the game of trying to burst it out <laughs> there and you know try to get everybody to write great things about my book. It's kind of organic. If you, that's my attitude about this: is that if you read yeah. the book and really enjoy it, that's fine. I'm not trying to become a best-selling author on it. But if you read the reviews, a lot of people will say they really got a lot from this book because of the practical advice that was in there, which is what I was trying to do. And that's, I go back to the title of the book, Is Self-Employment for You? Mm. Not trying to talk you into it or out of it. It's just at the end of this book, if you finish it, that you say, I can do this. I want to take a shot at this. Or you say, no, this isn't for me. Again, I think it's successful in both cases. If you read the book and you're still ambivalent about that, then I feel the book hasn't accomplished what I hoped it would. How did you decide to focus on those aspects? Or are those like eight myths common across the board as far as entrepreneurs kind of goes? I think that's my own kind of brand on things that I felt that maybe there was urban legends out there that said this is what you need to do. For example, watch your competitors like a hawk. I cited my experience thinking that in the beginning, my competitor in the newspaper business, and my thinking dramatically shifted from being threatened by this competitor to being this competitor is my best friend because if their paper succeeds, that helps me. I think many businesses fail because they have too much money in the beginning. And that's Mm -hmm. really counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> you know, go. How could? How was that possible? Why well, saw people going into business and their father or somebody close wrote them a big check to say, "Hey, just go do it." You don't have the experience just because you have a concept, and the, keeping your overhead low in the beginning allows you that wiggle room that if you make mistakes, you're not going to go out of business. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And you can end up getting like an unrealistic expectation as far as like what your budget will be moving forward or like what it should be. And that can really like mess things up. That's where the business plan comes in. A lot of people I would hear, and this is why I called it a myth, is that the first thing you do is sit down and write a business plan. I agree you write a business plan, but that's the last thing you do. If you have a flawed business concept, and I go back to finding a niche, solving a problem, is the keys to success. No um, bad business concept is going to be saved by a business plan. And the business plan is going to adjust quickly. You know, as you go and get into the business, some of the assumptions that you have will change and you have to pivot. Who could ever projected a year ago right now where we're sitting that a pandemic would come? Right. If you're running a (laughs) restaurant, you were making plans for 2020 and you're looking real rosy if you're in Seattle, economy's good, business is good. Well, guess what? This happens. And you have to um, put that into your business plan or your thinking. 2008, there was the huge uh, recession. Nine, or, uh, 2001, the uh, dot-com bust. 1987, there was Ooh. a huge recession. That's going to happen. That's guaranteed. Every 10 or 12 years, there's going to be a pretty major recession. If a lot of people are out there building businesses and aren't aware of that and they get into debt too much and whatever, and these things happen. From this book, do you have any like favorite blurbs or quotes 
Yeah, I think, again, a cornerstone that I have is that we hear a quote, follow your passion and the money will follow. And I don't believe that. I believe it's the exact reverse of that. It's like follow your customer's passion, follow your customer's needs, and the money will follow. One more thing I want to uh, have people Mm -hmm. consider. I discourage partnerships. Real entrepreneurs do not need partners. My quick summary of that is when you bring a partner into a business, what you're doing right away is giving half your business away, 50% of it. That's what partners do generally, Mm. depending on the structure. If you can't do this by yourself, that means you don't have the confidence in yourself. I think the most important quality for an entrepreneur to succeed is selling. You have to sell your vision. You know, a lot of Mm -hmm. people won't do that. They'll sit in their computer all day and expect the clients to come to them. And if you won't sell, don't go into business for yourself and don't abdicate that in the beginning. Don't hire a salesperson until you're out there and you know how to sell and you know what moves the person to buy your product or service. Eventually, you can move out maybe and do that. But if you're unwilling to do that in the beginning, Mm -hmm. then don't do it. And the other thing that people will say, oh, I got a partner because I'm good in sales and they're a good uh, accountant or they keep track of the bookkeeping. All right. You don't need to have a partner and give 50% of your business away. Hire a good bookkeeper as a free agent. Right. You know? So that's all I'm right. saying. That, that I feel very strongly about. And so I'm just submitting that you have other people around you, of course. Choose them. Mm-hmm. But, you, but you're the one. You're the captain of your ship. That's one of the best advice I could give for today. Wow. I love that. That is actually sticking out to me, too. That's huge. That's probably something that I'm going to think about you know, moving forward in in the business, you know, that I do. So Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. Yeah. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. Thanks to Jasmine Kendricks for asking me some great questions about self-employment. If you would like to get your copy of the book, Is Self-Employment for You? Visit Amazon and input Paul E. Casey. Don't forget the initial E, Paul E. Casey, C-A-S-E-Y. Democracy is fragile. We dodged a bullet with the election of Biden-Harris. The system worked, but it's definitely on life support. I celebrate the effort of millions of Americans for standing in polling locations for nine hours and those who overcame severe voter suppression. But it's going to be almost impossible for President-elect Biden to pull together a working coalition when 77% of Republicans believe the election was stolen. It doesn't matter that there is absolutely no evidence to support this claim. As a matter of fact, most election observers say that this was probably the cleanest election in history. I don't know how a democracy can survive if such a large number of Americans don't believe that the most important exercise of a well-functioning democracy is rigged. The Trump campaign kept hammering away that vote-by-mail was full of fraud, and he declared in August that the only way he could possibly lose in this election is that if it was rigged. Why is it that vote-by-mail was fraudulent in states that President-elect Biden won, states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, and others? Why is it that vote-by-mail worked perfectly in states that Trump won? like Florida, North Carolina, Texas, and others. Quote of the week, Truth is the most valuable asset we have. Let's accommodate it.
Mark Twain. Very timely. Reminder, COVID has come roaring back. If you really love your family and friends, do yourself and the public a favor. No large indoor gatherings during the holiday season. We got through Trump. We can get through this. And always remember, experience is our best teacher.